Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 136. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Massachusetts. And on the Life School podcast, I like to sit down with a group of fellow life science teachers and talk about what's going on in our classrooms, or maybe in our schools, or our careers, or you know, <laughs> trying to keep it topical and professional. But see, see where we end up on a on a lazy Sunday evening as we talk through the 2022 school year. <laughs> So today we return to a topic that comes uh, up every few months, and I feel like this is something that, uh, you know, especially with uh, the panelists we're having on here, I feel like this co uh, comes up all the time when we're discussing, and that's the idea of teaching interdisciplinary classes. And so today we're going to kick off the question with, uh, what was your favorite non-science related subject when you were a kid? And so joining us from Missouri is Kelly Kluthi. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, it's good to be here. So in addition to biology, which was like my favorite core subject, I loved art and orchestra. Um, I really liked drawing and playing the violin. Um, I was a super quiet kid in high school, but I liked expressing myself through art and music. Wow. All right. I was not a quiet kid, um, which surprises nobody. Surprise. <laughs> surprises nobody. Uh, but I was not a great art or music person. Ironically, my sister is a musicologist um, and is like super into music and was a talented musician and has a background in musicology. Um, but yeah, no, I a lot of friends who are into art and music, but uh, that's interesting. Very different. It makes me think of your tattoos. Um. <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> All right. And joining us from Texas is Lee Ferguson. Welcome, Lee. Hello. So I had two favorite subjects, and one of them was government, believe it or not. Um, I actually really loved my government class. Um, it was, to me, it just made sense. I mean, and maybe that was me being a naive 16-year-old kid, um, but it just, the Constitution just made sense to me. I was like, oh, okay, and the governance structures made sense to me, um, and I still enjoy you know, watching the government look, you know, <laughs> reading about it and seeing how it functions or malfunctions as it were. Um, but music theory was another class that I really enjoyed because I was not a musician in um, going through school, but I did play piano at one point in my life. Mm -hmm. And to get a fine arts credit, I, I, my art, my fine arts credit choices were very limited. Mm -hmm. And for whatever reason, I didn't want to take art. So I chose music theory, which ends up being a lot of math, yeah. believe it or not, like patterns wise, oh, yeah. you, you use a lot of patterns and all that. And I really like that about it. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah. I was, I always enjoyed music theory as well. Um, that's always been something I've nothing. I've never actually taken a form of class, but it's something I always enjoy reading about and, and that sort of stuff. Or when people uh, explain aspects of it, I always, I always find that very fascinating. Uh, so for me, uh, you know, I went to a high school that had like just sort of fantastic teachers top to bottom. Um, I was telling somebody just the other day that I think like something like six of the teachers in our building um, had been principals of our building at one point and then left administration to go and teach. Like that's just sort of the nature. And it was a place where the teachers ran the building. It was a very uh, big personality teacher place. And I could do a lot of teachers that I had in that building is great. But I, I think back to um, my history teachers in particular, that I just found the history classes I took, the core subjects, whether it was U.S. history that I had, uh, where I just this really, I had a terrible sophomore year and I was really struggling academically. 
<clears throat> and I then got chicken pox um, and, oh. and then missed oh. like 10 oh. days of school. And I was not keeping up with my schoolwork before I got chicken pox, <laughs> but I got chicken pox and, um, and I missed like all this school and I came back and I, I struggled to fill out my incompletes and get back. And then I went away on our spring break and I academically did not really come back. And so it was like three weeks after spring break. And there was this teacher's meeting with all of my teachers and my mother um, and me wanting to know why I wasn't doing well in all of my classes, um, except for U.S. history, where my U.S. history teacher pulled me over and he goes, why are we having this meeting? <laughs> I was like, I'm not doing well in my classes. And he's like, you got an A minus in my class. <laughs> and I was like, well, I was like, Fonch, I like your class. I don't know what to tell you, but I, it's the one class I liked going to. So when I think back of when my, I was the lowest of my lows, I still enjoyed doing my U.S. history work. Um, I just found it. And I had a, I took an American West class and I took a, 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 a constitutional law class. And I took, you know, we had all these cool history classes that were electives we could take as juniors and seniors now they were just so they were so fascinating and um and i like even contemporary history like i listen to i've been listening to like movie podcasts like how did the you know all the background about the history of the movie industry and stuff like that and you know i I went on this weird john carpenter uh wormhole down over a break where i was watching all these movies and they talk about sort of the history of like the movie industry and how decisions were made and i just get pulled into the narratives of history so easily um that that even today i still am a little bit of a history nerd (laughs) i think it plays off the trivia piece too i love trivia (laughs) Yeah. All right. So, uh, as I said, we want to talk about interdisciplinary classes, but um, before we do, I think we have to, you know, discuss like the structure of classes. So when I think of my building, um, you know, I think of my building as extremely siloed. That's the way I often describe them. Like we have all of these departments. And I think of them as silos, like you have nine, 10, 11, 12, and you will see other teachers who teach within your department regularly, but not necessarily the other silos very often. And it's both physically structured that way, um, but very much like socially that way as well. So before we talk about how we would teach an interdisciplinary class or other aspects, um, I want to know how siloed are the schools that you teach in? Do teachers from different disciplines or expertise have a chance to collaborate or talk or that sort of stuff? And so, Lee, how about you? You've got a school that's, I think, a little bit more people than Montana, right? It's Montana is a little smaller. Pretty than much. Your yeah. I mean, my school is like Helena, right? Yeah. It's it's the population of Helena. No. Um, so, and, and our structure is very strange too, because we operate as one high school, but we have three campuses. So it's very strange, right? Because we have a ninth grade center where we don't collaborate with them at all because they're not even physically with us. Mm -hmm. And then we have a steam center, which again, there's no collaboration between our campus and that one, as far as I know, (laughs) Um, even though our students go there to take certain STEM classes um, and certain, I guess they're not really art classes so much, but like, what is over there? I think fashion design might be over there or something like that. I don't even know. Um, So I know that they have collaboration between teachers there, but I don't know exactly what. And so on our campus though, because we are so large, it is difficult Mm -hmm. to have any kind of cross-disciplinary collaboration that doesn't naturally happen. Like for example, the culinary team and the hospitality team work together very closely and they work with the teachers that teach um, business and marketing. Mm -hmm. 
but they also have physical structures that allow that to, to happen, right? Because there's a restaurant and then there's a school store and the restaurant is run by the culinary kids and the hospitality kids, right? Because the culinary kids are doing the cooking, but the hospitality kids are the servers um, and the managers, you know, the student managers. And then they work in tandem with the business kids to market, um, you know, and sell like the leftover cookies from the restaurant, you know, so they'll take the cookies that aren't sold during the two hours of the day that the restaurant is open to the public and they'll sell them in the school store, you know, because after the first year they figured out that, you know, they were throwing away these cookies because they had gone past whatever freshness date the, (laughs) the health guidelines say. And the business kids were like, but look at how much money you're throwing away. And we know that you could sell these to students, you know, because students aren't actually allowed to eat in the restaurant since when the students are serving in the restaurant, that's a class. <laughs> and so only it's only open to the public. And, and believe me, they get plenty of business from the public, you know, and so it's not. And the other problem with having students, you know, going into the restaurant and sitting down for a meal is that you know, you have students serving students and how does that look? Yeah. 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 It doesn't, it, it, it's not good optics. And so, um, you know, when they figured out how much money they were losing by not, you know, you know, selling the cookies in the, the, um, school store, they were like, wait a minute, (laughs) we could sell these. And sure enough, they do. You know, so at the end of every day that the restaurant is open, they take the cookies, put them in the school store, boom, they're gone. (laughs) <laughs> you know, because the kids will buy them. So there's natural collaboration there. Um, and then, of course, when the fine arts department, you know, there's always collaboration between, you know, band orchestra and theater. Um, and then we have a, our school has a full orchestra. So you have kids from the band and the orchestra performing together. But as far as core subjects collaboration goes I don't know that any of that actually happens on my campus so I'm not sure (laughs) to be honest I'm almost afraid to ask Kelly because I'm sure your experience is almost exactly the way Lee's is um, in your (laughs) schools that you've taught in and all that background (laughs) and your current school I'm just thinking about it like do you relate it all to Lee's story (laughs) Well, yeah. So I used to work at larger schools, yeah. you know, with 15, 2,000 kids, 1,500 to 2,000 students. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, but over the last couple of years, I kind of was over the big school thing and I've worked at a small charter school and now I'm at a small private elementary school, um, which is a completely different situation when it comes to collaboration especially at the elementary, I think there's a lot more natural opportunities um, to do so. You don't have all the same moving parts that high schools do because the kids kind of stay grouped together. Mm-hmm. Um, at my small school, there's like one art teacher, one music teacher. So there's like, you know, it's just a lot easier, smaller groups of people working together. Um, but I do also have a really cool opportunity to do some cross-curricular work in just my own classroom. Um, where I get to teach a STEAM course twice a week to my fourth and fifth graders. So we're encouraged to take what we're learning in our regular science classes and incorporate some engineering and some art practices into the content, which is really a pretty cool setup. Wow. That's it. 
That's it's funny how how steam is now everywhere. Um, yeah, <laughs> it really it really is because now both have mentioned steam as drivers and yep. and for me. Um, you know, my school is, is very separated by subjects, as I mentioned before, you know, we have this large campus and they, the way that the building got designed, um, you know, I teach in the West wing, I teach on the second floor of the West wing. So for me to get from the parking lot to my classroom, I only passed by science classes. Like I do not have, like literally I walk upstairs, I walk past physics classes. There's a couple of special education classes up there, but it's two special education classes and science classes there. If I want to go from my class down to my, my the science department center, I pass by a hallway that leads to some art classes. That's it. And there are huh. m- math classes around the corner from the classroom that I teach. So those are the people in my wing. So when I'm going up and down the stairs to my classes, I'm seeing science teachers, arts teachers, math teachers, special education teachers. If you see an English teacher, you have to ask them if they're lost. Are they dehydrated? Like, <laughs> like, like what has happened? You know, like, because they, and are you just making copies over here? Well, and, and similarly, like if I'm on the number, if I'm in the East wing, so I used to teach um, an alternative program that was housed in our East wing and I would go there and I would almost every day see a different person or a different group of people. And a lot of people would say, what are you doing over here? Like not, they weren't, it wasn't like mean spirit or anything, but they were, it was confusing. It's disorienting mm-hmm. to see people mm-hmm. from like the East wing and the West wing or the West wing and the East wing. Like it, and, huh. and to the point where it almost comes across as contemptuous, like, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. <laughs> even though, yes, you're a teacher in this building. Like it's weird. It's a weird cultural phenomenon. Um, so with all that said, it's and that is a strange thing. It's really hard to imagine the social interaction that would lead to the curricular discussion that would lead to an interdisciplinary school when you're as siloed as we are. You know what I mean? Yeah. See, and the way my building is physically arranged, it's not by subject areas so much as it is by, I guess, clusters of subjects. Mm-hmm. So, like when I walk into the building, my room is on the second floor as well. Um, but I'm on the shortest hallway. Mm -hmm. And so I walk past anatomy classrooms, English classrooms. And then when I go upstairs, it's all math and science. And so I see, you know, people from other subject areas. In fact, the math teachers that are, you know, on my hallway are right across the, the, I almost said street, but they're right across the hallway from me. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I at least have the opportunity to see other people in other departments. Now seeing other science teachers, I don't see very many of them at all because we are so spread out. I mean, there's some, like all of chemistry, like all of my hallway is life science. But then in the F hall, that's all physics. And in G hall, that's all chemistry. So it's, it's separated that way. Yeah. But we're everywhere. I mean, we're scattered all everywhere. And so you could be on a hallway with science teachers and history teachers or, you know, electives teachers. It just depends on, you know, where your classroom is located. Yeah. Excuse me. Yeah. So with us, like, I I do know that, for example, um, that there are there are definitely, you know, 
teachers that teach some interdisciplinary things. But for me, whenever I talk about the idea of interdisciplinary work for myself, uh, I have friends like I, I, I have a couple of very good friends who I'm on committees with. And it's great. We have these great interdisciplinary type conversations when we're on a committee. But then as soon as that committee is over or whatever that I think, or even it's a new year. And so you can't go on that committee. Like I will go months without seeing them. There's a, like we, I was on the, the most recent committee I was part of was our one-to-one committee when we adopted one-to-one mm-hmm. programs and, um, and started, you know, helped people with the professional development to, to utilize classrooms, which was very, a big deal last year. And I got really close to, a, in particular, a couple of other teachers in that group. I cannot tell you the last time I saw this English teacher who I had all these deep conversations with like every month because we were in these meetings and we sometimes hang out afterwards and talk. And and then I, we had the long conversation at graduation. I could not tell you the last time I, I physically saw her. Like maybe I saw her once in November, um, but I may have seen her like three times this since the beginning of the school year. Um, because just because our building is so big and, and spread out, sort of as you're saying, Lee, spread out over a big distance. You just don't mm-hmm. see them. And I get to collaborate a lot with my biology teachers, which is great. But again, there's like, there's, there's costs to design and the cost of our yeah. design is the lack of that, that natural interaction. Yes. Um, and I will say, if you don't have the social interaction, you're not going to have the curriculum interaction beyond that. Uh, that's really hard. Unless you take it upon yourself to go, I'm going to physically walk you know, a thousand steps to get over to the other wing. And hopefully that person has a prep period at the same period as me, you know, maybe. <laughs> Just a thousand steps. <laughs> I was going to say, it's an eighth of a mile <laughs> to the end of one of the hallways in my school. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like to my principal's office, it's an eighth of a mile. Yeah. So it's a quarter mile round trip. It's crazy. <laughs> I will say that is like the biggest difference working as at a small school is I feel like there's more opportunity for cross-curricular work with other teachers, but I am now the only science teacher as well. Mm -hmm. So I don't have anyone to really collaborate with in my building on my content. So there's definitely trade-offs in the larger buildings versus the smaller ones. Yeah. Well, and it seems like, it seems like to me that at the elementary level, there's more opportunity Yep. for cross collaboration, right? Like it was, it's a more, it seems like just to me that it would be a more natural, you know, and we're thing. given a little bit more opportunity to do it as well. We've got more plan periods together and more time to check in with each other. It just, it happens very naturally. It seems like. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, so let's, let's get to it. I think we've gotten up to that point. So are there any interdisciplinary, you know, classes or projects that, that are currently being taught in your school or, or if not, you know, are there other schools that you know who, that, that are doing this? And so, Kelly, you're talking about, um, you know, you've, your past small schools and your current school. What about what about mm-hmm. interdisciplinary classes and projects? What, what are you what's your experience? So the thing I loved about the school I just left was we devoted the first four weeks of school to a school wide interdisciplinary project. And it was something that we tried to make very relevant to like social movements that the students are interested in or maybe want to learn more about. So in 2020, after the unrest with like the Black Lives Matter movement, we really focused on redlining and the history of systemic racism in Kansas City. So we spent a whole month learning about 
uh, health disparities in science. And in math, we are looking at how some families are able to afford houses and others aren't and generational wealth. And we've looked at the history and literature and physical science and art and music all played a role in helping tackle this really just terrible history in our city. And then we also spent some time thinking about solutions and ways to move forward as a community. Um, This most recent year, we did a really cool project about reimagining the future where we did artificial intelligence in science. And then we were looking at social movements. And then the kids were also looking at like um, classic speculative and science fiction and comparing it to the reality that we're actually facing now. Um, So it was something that I really looked forward to. It was something I felt like we had a lot of um, very real collaboration on. And it was stuff that was actually interdisciplinary. It was the first time I've ever actually had that sort of experience as a teacher. Um, I don't really know a whole lot about what's going on right now at my new school. It's only been a week or so. (laughs) But I am really excited about the STEAM course I get to teach because I think there's all sorts of really neat ways to bring in like the engineering and maybe even a little bit of coding and things like that to um, the science classes that aren't necessarily in the standards themselves, but are important. Yeah. I, I keep wanting to bring coding in. Like it's, it's, yep, those, yep. it's this thing that's over here. It's off to the side. It's this nagging thing that I'm like, I need to bring this in somehow. Uh, so My kids are obsessed with scratch. They sit down and like when they're finished with stuff early or they'll just like waiting for class to start, they're like coding and scratch and doing all sorts of games and stuff. Like it's something they're really into. So yeah. hoping to do more with it. Yeah, I could see that you, it, yeah, you, it's, it's very rich, especially at that age. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, it's, it, it, I had all of these grand plans to bring in coding stuff. And then uh, we have had this pandemic the last two years <laughs> sort of undermined. I, 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 am bl- I, am, I don't blame the pandemic on much, but I am going to blame the pandemic for that part of my brain that I was yep. going to dedicate yep. on figuring out how to get programming into my biology classes. <laughs> that's, that's the part that got completely wiped out by the last two years. <laughs> Don't believe you at the slightest. Yeah, yeah. I've been so close. I have all of these like notes about projects that I want to do that have to do with coding and a little derailed uh, there. So, uh, so Lee, you, you had mentioned a little bit about uh, some collaboration on your class, but uh, so tell us a little bit more. What what collaborations are there and, and, you know, are they beyond those, you know, culinary arts groups? Are they in the broader school? So as far as a campus-wide collaboration, I guess... The I guess we'd have to consider we had this thing called Eagle Give Day mm-hmm. um, right before Thanksgiving. And what that was, was it, it was happened on an early release day. So, you know, instructional time was cut in half anyway. And so what they did was they offered students, you know, multiple opportunities through different, you know, courses or clubs to participate in an on-campus service project. And so... I guess that's kind of collaboration. I mean, it really wasn't, you know, curricular related, most of it. Um, but, you know, the students did address, you know, some needs in the immediate community, right? So there was a group of kids doing a food drive. There was another group of kids making, you know, sleeping mats for the homeless. There was another group um, making the plarn, the plastic yarn used for making oh. the sleeping mats, Um there were kids, you know, making cards for the local children's hospital. I mean, it was a, ho- a whole bunch of different things, but all to the same end, right? Just giving back to the community. Um, and they told us at the beginning of the semester that 
because that particular day was so successful, I think they said they had 2,100, 2,200 kids participate, something like that, because the kids could sign up for a class period and go that they're going to do it again this semester. Um, the, the kids are going to do it again just right before we go to spring break. And so, you know, I'm not sure like what sorts of, you know, service projects they're thinking or if they're going to make them interdisciplinary in any way. I think it would be really cool if they did, <laughs> but I don't know how that's all going to shake out, what that's going to look like. Yeah. I mean, the having those community service structures and then thinking broadly beyond it, once you have a structure that you could use, that's very, that's mm -hmm. a big step. Um, because yeah. uh, I know that that's, uh, you know, the, the rigid structures of the way high schools are set up is often a barrier to doing these kinds mm -hmm. of things that we're doing, doing projects. Um, because if you've got to go through this set of periods on this day, um, I, I know that you have, it, it, it's, it's very challenging, um, for kids to access those things, even when you provide them as like a, Oh, you can optionally opt out. Well, if mm -hmm. they're, history teacher or their science teacher is assigning them something else to do during that day, um, academically minded kids are going to go do those things. Or mm -hmm. um, so it does it, having those structures present and then having community wide buy-in is, is a good first step to doing things, you know, having people get together and work, even if it's just, um, and I don't mean to say it's just, but uh, community services is, is a, is a possible avenue for that. So um, mm -hmm. it's, it's promising, sure. especially with a school your size. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, and yeah. because it's so big, there's there's a lot of opportunity for great impact. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you've got 5,600 kids at your disposal. <laughs> a lot of manpower. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so yeah. there you go. Yeah. All right. And so for for my school, the the I know I was thinking about this. I was you know I was my first instinct. I think you know when I I put this out there was like. There's not really any, but the truth is, is that there is in, in our art department, you know, going back to, to STEAM um, is really the driving force behind that. So our art department um, really has done historically, not just recently, but going back over time, a great job um, integrating. So we had had this longstanding collaboration between the art department and our English department doing a poetry based project where they would have a poet come in. Um, and and read poems and would have like they'd have a large assembly with a they had a poet come in every year a different poet who would come in and then there were art projects done in and around the themes of that poet and so um, and there were students who were on the committee that would that would sort of structure the day and would help you know select poems and then there was work being done in English classes and there was work being done in art classes and it was and then there was uh, you know displays of the artwork. Um, that came out of that. And that's something that they did for, for years. Um, and I remember them bringing it up and they'd bring it up in faculty meetings and it'd be like, yay, yay, clap, clap. <laughs> that's the thing. It wasn't hitting my classroom, but it was definitely interdisciplinary work. And then closer to my world um, in the last couple of years, there is an actual new elective that's called uh, Explorations in Visual Arts and mm. Sciences, which is co-taught by one of our biology teachers and one of our mm. art teachers. And what they do is students do independent research projects where they explore something that is data related. Now, that could be scientific, that they run experiments and do it. It could be something where they're get gen taking data that already exists and they're creating visual representations to communicate the nature of that. So you can see how this super open-ended where this could be everything from... Um, you know, telling a story through a series of graphical depictions 
um, and and other visuals and models that help tell the science story, or it could be taking something that has from the social science side. Um, you know, you've surveyed students to gain information about that, and then you've created art that represents the 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 feelings are there. So it's really this kind of crazy uh, out of the box thinking that these two adults have come together. And I don't know that they know 100% what this class is going to be, but it's a taught every other day elective. So it's a but mm. that fits into our schedule because we go a blue gold alternating day schedule, but they do it every other day all year long. So it fits nicely opposite of a gym class or opposite an you know a lab. The AP classes have labs that go every other day. So it, it fits nicely into a few different existing structures that are there. Um, and it's been very successful and kids can take it multiple years too. So if you take it, you could take it freshman year and then again sophomore year and just pick a different project to work on. Um, and it's very student-centered on what project you want to do. So, um, so yeah, they're definitely there. And uh, I know there's other interest out there to do things like that. But um, those are existing existing projects that, that I know happen in our school. All right, so now it's time to this. And I did write this question 100% with Lee in mind, knowing Lee's answer. Like, this sounds funny, but like, but like I wrote this question down. And I was like, I'm just going to like wind Lee up and let her go on this one because Lee is, I, I haven't, I going back, I would go to say in the last two years, Lee has mentioned this class. I'm going to say the over under is six times. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, oh, yeah. but this is, she's not lying in this one because she's got there. But my question is, what would be your dream interdisciplinary class or project to run? And Lee, what would would be your dream project <laughs> it would totally be now that i've seen the now that i watched the documentary series high on the hog i would also add a science and history of cooking class uh. um and teach that with a history teacher and the culinary teacher because i think that it would be so much fun to teach kids okay so you know these things that you eat like here's the historical background behind number one why the dish was created you know why do we have what's called soul food why do we have you know tacos why do we have fajitas you know especially those things you're being in texas you know those are cornerstones of tex-mex food well fajitas were created from the worst part of the cow <laughs> right because this is what the this is what the vaqueros had to eat right because it wasn't the best part of the cow but they made it that way you know and so i think it would be so much fun to teach the kids the science behind you know the science and the history behind why do we have the food on our plates that we do, right? You know, and not just the cooking aspect of it too, but the production, right? And the harvesting. It's like, okay, I want you to think about the people that pick your food, who raise your food, who grow your food. You know, what is their role in what makes it to your plate? You know, and what is their history and why, you know, why are they just so, why is their history so important to you as a consumer, you know, um, but I think it'd be so fun. Like, you know, when you're teaching about pH, it's like, all right, kids, let's make ceviche, mm -hmm. you know, because you're using citrus juice to, to cook without heat. Mm -hmm. You know, what about fermentation? Hey, let's make some sourdough bread or let's make some kimchi mm -hmm. or let's make some sauerkraut, you know, and I think out of all of those, I'd probably pick the sourdough bread and the sauerkraut only because in Texas, there is a strong community of Germans that moved to Texas in the late 1800s, the mid 1800s. That's why we have New Braunfels and Green and all these other places in central Texas that were populated by Germans. Mm. Um, and it was the Germans that when they came to Texas, they were the ones that kind of helped us get barbecue going with sausages and stuff like that. Um, 
And I just think, you know, teaching a whole section on curing meat <laughs> would be fun because there is so much science behind curing and smoking meat, you know, and then getting the culinary, you know, teacher involved in doing that. I think it would be just the best class ever, <laughs> honestly. And then, like I said, because I, mean, I don't know if you saw the, the series High on the Hog at all. So it is a fantastic series on Netflix about the influence of um, black people on American food culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you know, of course, they start by talking about slavery and how, you know, a lot of the food that was, you know, eaten by, you know, African Americans back in the day, was out of necessity, mm-hmm. right? Because the slaves were not given the best food to eat. And so they had to make do with what they had. Well, now this is stuff that, you know, people will go to like high-end Southern cooking restaurants to eat and pay a lot of money for and think, oh my gosh, this is the most amazing food. Well, you know, 150 years ago, people were eating this, or 160 years ago, people were eating this because this is what they had to survive, mm-hmm. right? It's not because it was some fancy pants, you know, culinary you know, masterpiece, this is what they were given and this is what they made out of it. And they just happened to make it taste really amazing, you know, and how, you know, the foods that were brought over from Africa have influenced Southern cooking, Mm -hmm. you know, okra and, and, you know, things like that. And so I think it would be interesting to, you know, put a historical spin on it too, you know, because when I think of, you know, my culture, you know, flour versus corn tortillas, there's a serious, you know, serious, you know, controversy, because there are some people that do not think that real tacos are made with flour tortillas. And down in South Texas, they'd be like, yeah, no, mm-mm, mm-hmm. we definitely make them with flour tortillas, <laughs> you know, because there are people that will argue that the only good tortilla is a corn tortilla. <laughs> and I would argue that that's not true <laughs> so I just think it would be so much fun to teach a class that was like the the convergence of those three subjects you know yeah. science you know culinary and history I just so think that would be so much fun I thought you were going to reference the the two things that came to mind as you were mentioning that were the the salt fat fat acid heat yes <laughs> yes for sure because that for sure you mentioned it several times throughout it was like oh that comes from that oh yeah because that book is the book is great and the series is great yeah. but like I said I would encourage you to also watch High on the Hog okay. cool. yeah because they talk about um they actually visit some places in Texas and they talk about how um cowboys actually came to be and I didn't realize that cowboy was actually, a, a, initially it was a derogatory term, um, you know, pointed toward the black cowboys, yeah. you know? And I'm like, wait, what? Yeah. Huh? And now we use this word to describe <laughs> any dude that wears a hat and boots? Okay. <laughs> you know, and rides a horse. But it was really interesting, you know, the way that the, the guy, Stephen something, I can't remember his last name, goes through and visits different parts of the country, oddly enough, does not visit New Orleans, hmm. which I thought was really strange. Um, because you would think out of all of the places where, you know, there would be black and Creole influence, it would be New Orleans, but he doesn't actually go to New Orleans as part of his, his you know, journey through the U.S. Um, you know, it's, it's just so interesting to hear him talk about how, you know, African-Americans and Africans have had influence, so much influence on, you know, American culinary history that's not acknowledged. 
yeah. right? Like mac and cheese. <laughs> yeah, that was created by black people, yeah. <laughs> you know, according to the research that this particular gentleman had done. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> I did not know this. But the way that, you know, that he talks about it and the way he teaches about it, I was like, oh, my gosh that's actually really cool, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So highly recommend. Like I binge watched that series because it was that good. Yeah. The, so. the people's history of science um, also mm. has a large section that talks about how the rice farmers in South Carolina uh, were specifically enslaving people from certain parts of Africa that had mm -hmm. rice growing cultures in it and talks yep. about the documentation of how that the that the enslaved people like there was this time where it was the slave trade we have this like monolithic view of the slave trade and no difference but the 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 people in South Carolina who were enslaving women, they were enslaving women from specific communities that grew mm. rice in Africa. This was not a, this was specific level of, of, of commerce that was directly related to farming and the ability to grow certain types of crops. And um, wow. yeah, it's, and, and then how that then influences food culture, you know, and how do you view a bag of Carolina rice today, Carolina brain rice differently mm -hmm. today than you would have, before mm -hmm. finding out the you know reading the sections on that I, that that book um, there were several pieces where that where you talk about you know the history of enslaved people and their food culture and the food culture of Africa and how um, that was uh, deliberate in terms of the farming structures um, and right. where people raise certain types of food is yeah is a huge it's a huge piece um, and right. and things I well and of. and the other thing to kind of speak to Kelly's point earlier about disparities in healthcare, mm -hmm. you know when you look at the history of what the enslaved peoples had to eat and how that you know plays out later on in future generations with all mm -hmm. the health problems that plague you know African Americans on this continent you know, high blood pressure, diabetes and all that. I mean, when you look back at the lack of nutrition that was provided to the ancestors, you know, I think you can say that there is got to be some kind of correspondence between the poor nutrition that they received and the development of those health problems later on in future generations. You know, so it's there's it's very complex. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, a class like that could be incredibly complex and you could go down a whole heck of a lot of rabbit holes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I think it would be a really interesting class to teach and to take. If I could ever find one somewhere to take, <laughs> I would totally do it. I don't care what other things I've got going on. I would totally do it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Kelly, how about you? Uh, what's your dream interdisciplinary class if you're if you're not already doing it? Um <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's really hard to tough up or uh, follow Lee's idea there. Um, <laughs> but I was dreaming and on my way to teaching a research methods course at my previous school, um, submit my course proposal, got it approved. And then just with the pandemic and everything happening, I just didn't have the time for one more thing on my plate. Mm -hmm. So that just kind of fell by the wayside. And I wish I had the energy and the time and all that stuff you need to like get a new course up and running um, because I think it would have been really cool for my students co um, to be co-enrolled with a research methods course in addition to their college level science classes that they were taking. Um, but just learn some of the statistics and things that sometimes get skipped over mm -hmm. in more of a traditional science class. Uh, maybe one day. Yeah. 
But I am really excited about the STEAM course I get to teach. Um, I'm really excited to not really be tied down by a lot of testing and standards <laughs> and things that normally you have to worry about by teaching a core class. So I'm going to have a lot of freedom and I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to do with it yet, but I'm excited to just generate some ideas and I'm excited about it. Yeah. Standards are a blessing and a curse because you, you, mm-hmm. you like they give you some structure and some parameters. Yeah. Um, and so having none, you then have to create, what do you want to be your yep. structures and your parameters? Um, so yep. I mean, it's better to be able to define them yourselves than having somebody, somebody else doing it. But uh, yeah, I can see why I can see the blessing and curse of of not having established standards that you have to hit. I think uh, I'll be feeling a lot better about it um, now that I've had like a semester to play with it and then the summer break to really refine things. Mm-hmm. But hopefully by the time school starts up again in the fall, I'll be able to hit the ground running and have like a cool steam course put together. Yeah, that's neat. All right. Well, sort of building off your idea of research methods, um, I am actually currently working on an elective, a junior senior elective, which we are tentatively calling uh, science research for publication. Um, and so this is an idea. Now, Very cool. um, it's based off the idea that we do not have a junior senior sort of independent research course in our, sc- our school, which is weird mm-hmm. considering we're such a high powered STEM historical school. Like we've just done that. Like the truth is, is that we just have done that as part of our AP class. Like we've done those things as part of that or kids have taken clubs or like that, but there's some equity issues the way we've done it. Like it hasn't been accessible to everybody. And so we decided to set up a situation where, you know, any kid, junior, senior could take this. And I am hoping that I will be able to bring it in, bring in either an English teacher or possibly a librarian to help me co-teach the class. Mm. Um, that is, that has been something I floated. It hasn't really, every time I say it, it's kind of like, yeah, that sounds like it'd be a good idea. Um, but I never, I've never heard any follow-up on that. But I, in my dream would be to have somebody else who could come in and help me with the technical reading and writing. I could do that myself, but I think it would be a much richer experience for the the learners in the room if they had if they had the ability to get an English teacher's perspective on writing, technical writing and reading, and a science teacher's. I just think it would enrich the course. I think that the the types of resources we'd pull, how we could scaffold them, how we could individualize and, and meet different kids, because kids will be working on different types of projects in that room at the same time. Like I, my envision is that by the time we get to like November, December, I'm going to have like, <laughs> you know, a dozen different projects going on. Even if kids are collaborating together on a common project, I'm going to have maybe as many as a dozen projects going at any given time. Having a couple adults in there would be super helpful. So um, that's my hopeful uh, thought there. Um, I also have long thought that it would be very cool to have a course that was focusing on the uh, Innocence Project and Mm -hmm. teach a collaboration between a science and a social studies teacher on, um, you know, the history of incarceration, the history of bad forensics, bad evidence, what is good evidence, what is what is the evidentiary standard legally versus a scientific evidentiary standard, um, mm-hmm. how are structures set up to be unjust, um, how, mm-hmm. how has science been used to propagate those injustices, um, and what should be done to, what can be done, and how are examples of the undoing of those injustices. Um, 
I th- I just think that there's a lot of richness in there to the ambiguity of certainty with which a lot of people want to walk through life and say, these are the things that we certainly know and point out examples of times that people thought something with great certainty until they realized they didn't. <laughs> and I think that uh, the, the criminal justice system is a place that, that I think a lot of the discussions that we have about how could science play a role in equity and justice, looking through that historical lens could be super powerful. Um, mm-hmm. Again, I don't ever see science, history teachers, let alone talk to them anymore. So so I, it's hard to have that kind of discussion and collaboration to do that. I have floated it a few times and I get, a, yeah, that sounds interesting, but um, it's difficult to pull off in the building that I'm in. But, you know, I'm not, I'm not retiring anytime soon. I got, I got a, a few years left and, uh, you know, I, I'm predominantly going to be teaching AP over the next few years, but it wouldn't, wouldn't hurt my feelings at all if I taught a couple of other electives with other people um, over that time, uh, filling my days. I, I think that those could be some some fun and uh, like both interesting for the students and enriching for me to teach uh, mm-hmm. courses, which I think is the the draw of interdisciplinary work. Like that, that's the thing that we're all learners, um, and if you're working with another expert who's got different expertise than you, you can learn a lot. All right. Well, that was a fun. I mean, look at that. We're in we're in February. It's February 2020. You know, I'm sure the world's not on fire. We're recording this a month before this comes out. So um, <laughs> we're we're uh, we're ending on this positivity note as we kick off the month of February. All right. Let me give show credits. Uh, please subscribe to Life of School on your podcast player of choice. Um, you can go to Patreon.com/lots. Chip in a buck or two a month to support the work that we do. You can also get show notes there as well as on LifeOfTheSchool.org. Music on this every episode is provided by jake and jenkins and ex-magicians you can follow me on twitter at mr matthew tweets or at life of the school and you can follow kelly and lee i will tweet out their links when i post this episode so thanks for joining us and i'll talk to everybody soon